You're not trying to buy podcasters. You're trying to buy listens. And to buy listens, you have to put together 20 smart points per podcast. Is that all? 20? I don't know. How many do you think we that actually do? That may even do? be high. Six? <laughs> you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Welcome one and all to the genre hopping, movie reviewing, and reappraising podcast, Be Real. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we are here today on the Playlist Podcast Network, where we are always happy to be, and presented, we should tell you, by the California College of Arts Writing MFA. They have put us in front of these microphones today uh, to talk about sports, what did you call it, sports disruptors? I like that title, yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about High Flying Bird, the new Steven Soderbergh movie, uh, Moneyball, the 2011 Bennett Miller movie, and 1996's Great White Hype uh, with Sam Jackson and Peter Berg and uh, uh, scores of other actors because they all, to borrow a line from High Flying Bird, are about this game on top of a game. You know, there's the yes. there's the sport in the ring, there's the sport on the court, but then there's the the movers and shakers, the media manipulators, the uh, people in charge of roster personnel, the people who gauge performance, looking for some like mythic golden ratio that like no one can see. Um, these are the people we're focusing on today, and what sort of interesting, not sports movies they make for. You want to get back on the court. That's your agent. I want to get you there. But we are in a lockout. There are no actual games to watch. You think these fools, these rich white dudes, gonna let these sexiest sport fall by the wayside? This team's my family. I need us to be one big family again. Football is fun, but it don't sell sneakers. To move merch and inspire rap lyrics, they need your services. NBA wanted control of a game that we played. We played better. They invented a game on top of a game. I can see a whole infrastructure that put the control back in the hands of those behind the ball. What you gonna do? But I'm about to pull up a chair. My God ain't right. Yeah, so we're gonna start with High Flying Bird, right? Yeah, that seems right, since that's the one that just came out and probably the one that you have seen recently. Or if you haven't, it's on Netflix. It on you probably have that. It is on Netflix. It just dropped there this past weekend. As I mentioned, this is a Steven Soderbergh movie, uh, who you know from being you know, one of the great American auteurs currently living. So you probably know who Steven Soderbergh is and what he's about. But this really falls in line with uh, a lot of his work, both in the sense of technical exper- experimentation, because it's very clearly all shot on an iPhone. Um, and because Stevie Sodes just loves process. He's always loved, like, how did, how, how did this happen? How did this come together, this heist? Did something happen 48 hours or 72 hours earlier? <laughs> Do they already have that egg? Yeah. Yeah, how did it happen and what happened before? Um, this is, like, in conversation with something like Ocean's Eleven, 
it's the Ocean's Eleven of like boring sports agent movies <laughs> dealing with things that are real and not real. That's what I think is kind of funny about this movie. And it kind of reminded me of that movie we talked about, what, six months, a year ago, uh, American Animals, mm-hmm. where it's like half sort of documentary, half sort of fictionalized thing. But this is not necessarily a documentary in any capacity other than three prominent basketball um, draft picks sort of talk about their experience being a freshman in the NBA. And that is sort of like the, the, the interstitial Frasier lines that separate the acts of this movie. You're right. You're right. It, it, it is reminiscent of that. And I, we'll talk about that more in a second. So the basic plot of the movie is that uh, Ray Burke, played by Andre Holland, um, who's a great actor and who you'd know from playing... Are you an Andre Holland guy? Yeah, I mean, the sample size is small for him, but like after he played Kevin in the last act of Moonlight, I was, I was pretty sold. Yeah. I liked him a lot on the Hulu Castle Rock Stephen King adaptation. I never saw that. He's good in that? And I think he's totally brilliant... Um, in the Nick, that right? Worked with Steven Soderbergh. Showtime, before. Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny because I mentioned this movie to the receptionist in my office, and she said that she can't stand Andre Holland. And I was like, "That's amazing that you have any strong feelings about <laughs> this not that well-known actor." Yeah. But Should she give a reason? Have, I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't quite figure you, it out. You can't hold a conversation with someone who doesn't like Andre Holland. Yeah, that's where I kind of draw my line in the sense. Like, you don't like him. I, that's the end of this. I'm going to my office. So he plays uh, a sports agent um, in the dog days of a fictional NBA lockout. And you get the sense that his big client at sort of fake CCA is uh, this guy, Eric Scott, who is a rookie, which means that unlike... Um, you know, established superstar NBA players. He is in this weird purgatory of having no money, but like not being bound by like certain contractual obligations from the NBA, which sort of becomes important later. Um, but he's taken some loans. He needs some money. Uh, Ray Burke's like personal ability to uh, fund his players who aren't being paid is drying up. So he's basically this, the story of how he creatively tries to end this lockout by uh, questioning sort of whether NBA, the NBA on major television networks, like is the way we should consume basketball in 2018. And by raising that question kind of hopes to bring an end to all this. And there's some really interesting, like a ton of interesting civil rights commentary in this. We should have said this earlier, but this was um, the script is by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who co-wrote Moonlight with Barry Jenkins. Uh, It is a, like a virtuosic script, like line for line, I think. Um, yeah. What am I missing? And it's a predominantly black cast. Yeah, yeah. Which should not be overstated or understated. Right. Um, Sonia Stone from The Wire is the uh, the M- NBA like players rep who bargains with the owners. Uh, Zazie Beetz uh, from Atlanta and from Deadpool is... A really sad looking Bill Duke who's like always a cop in something and now he's like very emaciated as the guy Spence who runs the basketball program. Right, right. Well, he's always had that sort of hangdog expression. Yeah, but it's it's particularly like Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's striking the lack like the both where he is what he is passionate about and the total lack of passion behind other things he has to do. Right. Um 
Can I throw out a hot take like pretty early on here? Oh yeah, okay, sure. You Don't you feel like the setup for this movie, like the premise you just shared, yes. the cast of this movie, and just sort of like its political read just smacks of like Soderbergh doing Spike Lee and like even with the sort of similar plot flourishes and maybe things that don't quite work about this movie. Yeah, I mean, I want to agree. I want to say yes, but Soderbergh doing Spike Lee is something that I want to see. <laughs> oh yeah. And I mean, that's why I was excited to watch this movie, but there's like a lot of shades of like 25th hour inside man, even like shy rack, like just in the way that he positions these like strong, female characters mm-hmm. in a way that they have, if not the same agency, then more agency than their male counterparts, which is pretty fantastic to watch. Let's get back to those, the Carl Anthony Towns, Reggie Jackson and Donovan Mitchell interviews, which I think thought about one way are sort of like a, a weak part of the movie for me. Cause like they don't say anything. They're just like very more excitably delivering cliches than they would at the press conference. Well, that's what kind of reminded me of inside man. It's like those interstitial right. interviews also in black and white of like, here's a race thing or here's like a, a class thing we need to talk about here. And then we cut back to the, it's almost like that's the Greek chorus sort of reminding us the themes of, you know, because they're they're not just basketball analogies or metaphors or anecdotes. They're life anecdotes mm-hmm. that they're sharing about like being new somewhere or like when you're in the game, like you have to have fun doing it or like you're not good at it anymore. Right. Right. You know, stuff like that. And yet I think the the power of those is almost that they are in there. If this is a movie that is questioning the absurdity of like NBA players not owning their own likenesses through some various technicalities of the law. The fact that three NBA players are present talking in a movie that interrogates the NBA business model um, is almost kind of its own reward. Like, yeah, they are here being themselves, showing their faces in something that like maybe is not totally NBA sponsored. Well, it's very self-aware too in that, they even reference like Netflix's potential role yes. in live streaming rights, like in the future, which is very sort of strange for a movie that premiered on Netflix. But it also sort of, I think, speaks to that bigger question of, you know, what are the outlets for movies like this going to be in the future? Absolutely. Like much like, you know, watching this one-on-one Soderbergh versus Spike Lee genre picture, you know, watching these two guys play basketball on, on Snapchat or whatever mm-hmm. could be the future. And like, sure, it doesn't have the prestige of the NBA, i.e., you know, a theatrical distribution for a film, but that doesn't make it any less interesting and consumable. Totally. So there's something so much about like everything, you know, could be wrong, but then it pushes it like a step further being like the only way we make the original thing better is by throwing out these challenging, albeit like unsustainable models. That's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's the thing about this sort of subgenre we found in general is that, Sports are so fleeting and all these leagues are copycats. So like these innovations, and we can talk about this more with Moneyball, 
they last until the next kickoff, tip-off, or lead-off hitter, right? And so a challenge for all of these movies is to find a way to really, really contain the birth of this big idea and, like, shut the movie down before, like, its death sucks the drama out of the room. And I think that that's something that this movie does really, really well, um, like, with both its ending which i won't totally spoil if you can spoil that but also just like with music the like the richie havens music cues at beginning and end of uh high flying bird and handsome johnny have this kind of like and the beat goes on man you give the power to the next generation and it doesn't matter what this sort of like jerry Maguire, michael clayton character was able to accomplish like his absolutely his mango Those are season good comparisons but i also think it's so interesting too that like you'd think that Andre Holland's character should like be a lot older if he's like handing it off to the next generation. But in fact, the movie references the fact that he's not even 40 right, yet. That's right. And he's still like considered an old man, which like speaks to, to the sports thing. And kind of that quote from Moneyball, which we'll talk about in a second about like everyone tells you at some point you have to stop playing the child's game. There you go. Yeah. And that's sort of what maybe all three of these movies are about you know, is that moment when you realize that, like, this is not sustainable anymore. Whether you're the agent, whether you're the hype man, you know, whether you're the GM who just doesn't have money to put a decent team on the field. Like, what else are you going to do other than adapt and disrupt? Adapt or die. As... Adapt, uh, adapt or die. <laughs> that was sort of Nick Cage, Billy Bean, I think, but... <laughs> yeah, I only really have, like, a Nick Cage, so... <laughs> um... So, I don't think either of us have seen Unsane, the previous Soderbergh movie that was shot entirely on iPhone. Have we? Have you seen it? Well, so, this was shot. I didn't know that it was all shot on an iPhone. Entirely. Well, then this is a good test case. Did you find the camera work, like, weird or interesting? Can I, can I make a really embarrassing confession? You've never heard of Steven Soderbergh before? I don't know what an iPhone is. <laughs> no. I think it's funny because, like, I had to watch these movies all pretty quickly and I was on a train and I watched this movie on my iPhone. Oh, really? So maybe that's like why I didn't notice it, but maybe that's like on purpose, but I thought it was beautiful on my iPhone. I will tell you. So I've, I watched this movie twice last week, once on my new TV and once on my laptop and on the laptop, it hot, the, it really like hides the weirdness, like the sort of like boxed, like you're in a glass box feeling of a lot of these scenes. Like, right. Really the the shots are so weirdly framed. They I think. really like it, it goes down very easy on the small screen. And then it's not till you like see it on something, you know, big TV size, or I can't imagine what it'd be like to watch this in a theater where you're like, this camera work is weird. He's constantly like, you know, breaking the 180 degree line in the yeah. in the dialogues, which is sort of like, you know, Stephen just thumbing his nose at cinematog- cinematographic <laughs> rules. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Uh, but, it, but it really works again in a thematic way, like form following function and such. It's like, this is a story about suddenly seeing all of the themes of this machine you are part of. And so camera right. work that shows you the seams is really fascinating. Uh, but it also, the iPhone is so integral to the plot of this movie and, and like the lexicon by which all the characters like speak to each other. Yeah. They're like, I emailed you four times and I left you three messages. Right. Like, and the implicit thing is I didn't leave you a voicemail on your like box machine, in your office somewhere. Yeah. Like, I didn't send an email to your desktop computer. Like I was trying to reach you on your iPhone. And it's so interesting that the next level, the game on top of the game, if you will, of like 
Noah's watching this movie on an iPhone that was shot on an That's iPhone right. while he's on a train. We are the podcasters who are going to dance like those kids. And then at one point I was watching the end credits while walking around in New York City. Yeah. It was super meta. There you go. So let's talk a little bit just more about sort of the, the moviness of it and how it went down. Um, it's, it's short. It's quick. There are so many references per minute. Did you, did you yeah. have a good time? It's slick as hell. Oh, yeah. It's got that like Michael Clayton, you know, this is how like business gets done. Yeah. Kind of like patina on it. And just loving the really like A list. Like, with, like just Kyle MacLachlan being in this movie adds this whole other level of like, that's a serious white dude right there. <laughs> like, that's a. Yeah, he's playing the. Like, this guy's a billionaire. He's playing James and, Dolan, basically, the owner of the New York right, team. Right, right, right. And he had and Zachary Quinto in there too, like looking like he put on a little weight for it. Yeah. Like why? Like what other role are you doing that required you didn't put on weight just to play David Starr and be in two scenes? You might have. But I totally love that, like the the pulsating like vein of the NBA like comes down to the guy who murdered all those people in season one of true detective. <laughs> Cause like, obviously the NBA is controlled by the scariest white person you can think it's of. It's true. That actually is a really great bit of casting. I wish I knew that actor's name. Let me look. Glenn Fleischer. Okay. Yeah. Fleschler. He plays the yellow King in true detective and he's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And he's not any less terrifying in this one or anything else he's in. <laughs> but he—that's a great scene because again, he like he's like reading something off his iPhone while speaking very seriously, and then at the end, he delivers that line where he's just like, you know, the thing I hate about this the most, by by which he means the scabbing tournaments uh, that are selling all this money is like it's exactly what I would have done, and it is that kind of like yeah, if you wanna. If you see it, to, to go back to Ocean's Eleven, like, if you see a chance to take the house, you've got to take the house. And that's what right. Ray Burke is doing. How did it, you rushed it a little there, I think. What? That's what he says after. Oh, sorry, I sorry. How was that? Did yeah. I rush it a little? Yeah. I've seen that movie way too many <laughs> yeah. times. Let me ask you this, though. This movie is very slick, but don't you think that, like, the surprise ending of this movie is the worst part about it in that it like totally bumbles the tension that was built like leading up to the big reveal, like not to spoil too much about it, but like obviously like Ray Burke is like playing with some strings behind the scenes and the strings that he pulls, like I don't get why we need to flash back to that. Like why didn't he just do that? Why couldn't it happen in order? We could have seen the whole thing in real time. Yeah. Well, because you know that the McCraney script is not like, and now we go back three days. You know that's Steven Soderbergh's idea. Yeah, you know that Soderbergh being like, listen, I have a big idea. I'll keep all the lines in. I just want to do a couple things in a different order. Like, why? I'm just going to put in one title card here. Yeah. It's going to say 72 hours earlier for no reason. I have to say that I love not only... Andre Holland, but Melvin Gregg. And I fell in love with Melvin Gregg, who plays Eric Scott in this movie, when he plays DeMarcus from season two of American Vandal. Mm -hmm. And he's like also a basketball player who gets accused of this like horrible crime that he may or may not have done. Mm. But like the backdrop of this whole thing is him getting recruited to play college and then professional basketball. So it almost felt like a weird Netflix prequel to this movie. 
He's good. Funny. In this he's movie got this too. really funny. He's really good. He has this really funny like moment after when he like scores a basket. He'll like he plays the violin. Uh-huh. He just like plays the the music for his his foes in American uh, so Vandal. I was half expecting, yeah, okay. yeah. So I was half expecting him to do that. Like when he, but yeah, I don't actually see him play basketball for the most part. Yeah, not so much. I think he is. He does a good job of. Um, you know, taking a lot of punishment in the dialogue, especially in the opening scene, but then like still being pretty, you know, heartfelt about it. A thing I, a line I love that he delivers is um, early on, they establish that like his pregame ritual is not having sex. Um, and then like later on, he, before play- he accidentally has yeah. sex. <laughs> before playing a one-on-one game, and we don't really know how it affects his performance, but he's like, "Ooh, I just had sex," and everyone's like, "How could you say that?" It's like this weird moment where, like, this this dialogue is like so you know tight and uh, you know hyperbarically sealed, and then all of a sudden, like, someone from the outside like pokes it, and, and you realize that like nobody who hasn't been watching this movie like beat for beat would understand what's going on. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty funny moment, though. Yeah. I, mean, I think there are a lot of like really good moments here. A lot of great performances. Uh, Zazie Beats. Is that how you say it? Uh, yeah, Zazie. Zazie Beats. She's great. She's wonderful. And just like the... There's like a moment that like sort of tiptoes up to interrogating like where one draws the line and sort of workplace sexual harassment. And there's a moment where like Andre Holland's like, was that cool? And she's like, yeah, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And that I thought was sort of brave in its own subtle way. Um, there's a lot of great moments like that. And she's a, a great actor that I hadn't, I don't think I've seen her before, but now I will look out for her. And it seems like she's doing like 10 things next year, according to her oh IMDb. God, yeah. um, and she's so Atlanta's her main thing so far. And she's terrific on that. Oh show. yeah. Um, but I have to say, like, does this movie have a climax? And if so, what is it? And I think I missed it. I think you're right. I think that it the the jump back in time is unnecessary, and I think that it almost makes up for it by being so fast and so short and so slick, and then just sending you sailing with the final note, which is which is literally like the the struggle of fifty years ago, like goes on. Um, right. And like all of history is like encapsulated in one moment in one song, which I think kind of hides the fact that like there is not a great climax. But I admit that's right. a problem. Well, I think that I mean, if you look at Moneyball as a model here, and well, again, we'll get to it next. But you know, and it's not a spoiler to say that the climax of that movie is when Scott Hatterberg hits the home run to win twenty games. Right. This movie doesn't have that moment. It doesn't have that like, and then the thing that was supposed to happen happened because it was all part of his plan. Let me ask you this on this note. Is it maybe a little too cute then not to show the basketball game? That's the thing that I think separates this movie from being like a weird Soderbergh Netflix movie to being like an actually good mainstream intelligent drama that holds a sport up to a light is the fact that there's no sport in it. Mm -hmm. There's no even shadowy baseball cut scenes or like bad boxing yeah. cutaways to fake television shots. Like there's nothing to indicate how much, how part of the culture and like their physical presences are 
on television. Like there's no cut scenes of them like in high school or like, you know, when they were drafted or anything like that. And moments like that to me feel like the limitations of the budget of this movie, sure. which ultimately other than like, you know, clearly being shot in an iPhone, make this movie feel kind of cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what you're talking about is the trickiest thing that these movies have to do. I mean, I, I, I hate to get to my Moneyball points too fast, but I don't like those parts of Moneyball. I don't understand why they're there, but you do have to do something. And why they're there is because you have to do something. You have to, in some way, build momentum um, to, to keep this, like, you know, adjacent to the genre in a meaningful way. Um, should we turn toward ratings? Absolutely. You want to remind listeners how we do things on Be Real? There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. My God's own truth is that this movie is a good bad. I think without it having like a sports sort of triumph as the climax of it, it ultimately just becomes like a silly process movie that is an experiment that works akin to many weird things Steven Soderbergh has done over the years, <laughs> including but not limited to Mosaic and Sex, Lies, and Videotape, what put him on the scene to begin with. Um, but I may watch this again because it's slick, but I'm not going to watch it again because it's a great film. I think this movie's really good. Um, I agree with the problems that you have with it, but I 
having already seen it twice and it being 90 minutes that is just like packed with references. Also, I mean, I love the NBA. So that's, let's, let's put our cards on the table. Um, this was catnip for me. This movie's that like, isn't basketball truly about love and isn't the business model kind of problematic? And don't we still all just love civil rights and sports? And I was like, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. So, I mean, it definitely harkens back to, to, I mean, you loved he got game, don't you? Um, I like an hour and a half of he got game. Well, this is basically this movie is the hour and a half that you I wanted. wanted and he got game. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's a perfect uh, description of of why I like it. Great. So good, good from you. Yes, good, good for me. Before we get to Moneyball, let's go to a really quick word from our presenting sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. 2011's Moneyball, directed by Bennett Miller, written by Steve Zalian, and of course Aaron Sorkin, based on the Michael Lewis book uh, of the same name. Mm-hmm. Chance, this is a movie about Billy Bean's uh, 2002 Oakland Athletics season where he attempted to, as he puts it, count cards in baseball right. and use this money, this so-called money ball system to keep a, the budget lean for the Oakland Athletics but also make the playoffs. Right. Which, I mean, this really happened, and it happened a long time ago, so I can spoil and say they were successful in doing that and ended up winning 20 games in a row, which at the time was the longest uh, an AL team had done it. I need more money. We're not New York. Fine players with the money that we do have. I like Perez. Got an ugly girlfriend. Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. You guys are talking the same old nonsense. Like we're looking for Fabio. We got to think differently. Who's Fabio? Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. We're going to shake things up. Why don't you walk me through the board? I believe there's a championship team that we can afford because everyone else undervalues them, like an island of misfit toys. We want you at first base. I've only ever played catcher. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, watch. It's incredibly hard. He can't throw. But what can he do? You want me to speak? We're not pointing you yet. He gets on base. We are card counters at the blackjack table. We're going to turn the odds on the casino. I'm heading in. Text me to play by play. Wait, what? I don't watch the games. So the game on top of the game here, which the movie does a really nice job of setting up, is actually sort of the same one of of, uh, commerce and ownership that we touch on in High Flying Bird, um, but his specifics at baseball where there is no salary cap. (laughs) And so he's basically, Billy Bean is looking at his successful 2001 team, which is about to lose its three best 
players to free agency because they can all sign more lucrative contracts elsewhere. What's the dispar? Isn't it like a three or two hundred fifty percent disparity in payroll between the Yankees and the A's at this time? It's a crazy number. Yeah, something along those lines. They're paying. They want to pay like, was it thirty million dollars a? It's like thirty nine versus like a hundred thirty eight, thirty nine million. Yeah, hundred versus one hundred and twenty. Oh. It was pretty crazy. So the counting cards uh, element of it is um, like we just ha- we have to play a different game if we keep playing the game by the rule if we keep getting in the same fight with someone who's twice as tall and twice as big we're gonna lose every time. Um, right. Yeah. We gotta get our our stone in the stone shooter. And more so, I mean, that was my David and Goliath, yeah, imagery there. Um, slingshot, stone shooter. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is this is the predominant like paradigm in roster organization in baseball and in basketball now is advanced analytics. Yeah, like unleash this whole analytic craze yeah. that has dominated with like launch angle and like uh pips ball rotation and like crazy shit that is currently yeah dominating the the um the dialogue in baseball i mean and this is this is a stone age version of that right it's just like we need to buy runs to buy wins so we just need guys who have a high on base percentage it's simple arithmetic compared to what they're doing now Right. This movie is also a way simpler version of what is a far more nuanced story. Sure. Yeah. Um, that the book. I've, I have you read the book? I have not. The book's really interesting and like gets into more of the like what was sort of nuanced about that year too. Like it wasn't just that they like had like a. It wasn't like the Mighty Ducks or something. Where it was like <laughs> they took these ragtag kids and made them like the best hockey team in the world. Yeah, it's like they already had like a decent team. It's just they didn't have like a playoff caliber team, mm-hmm. and that the year before had been such a fluke. But they also had, as we were texting before a chance, like three of the best pitchers starting pitchers in the league one of the best closers in the league one of the best shortstops in the league and like and the al star right and an all-star third baseman yeah so really all they needed was like a first baseman to replace giambi a decent outfielder which they found in the uh serial domestic abuser david justice oops and (laughs) um who was the third guy? The setup guy, Bradford. Oh, yeah, with the weird pitching. He had a real Randy Choate to him. Sports podcast. Sports podcast. <laughs> so let's talk about Moneyball as a movie. This was a big this was a hit at the time. Um, An Oscar bait, too. Wasn't it Jonah yeah. Hill's first Oscar nomination? That's right. That's right. And, of course, if you know about the backstory for this movie, Steven Soderbergh, hey, got pretty far down the road of directing this movie until the studio was like, uh, well, you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to do what he did in High Flying Bird. He like didn't want baseball. He wanted documentary interviews. And right. Sony was like... He just wanted a behind the scenes, <laughs> like guys walking from office to office making phone calls, which is what this movie is. Yeah. I mean, that's the only difference between this movie and High Flying Bird is A, that it's based on a true story, and B, that the players are like there playing the game that we're talking about. And Amy Pascal was like, hell no, you're not doing that. And then Bennett Miller directed that. Right. Let me start broad here. One of the things I love about High Flying Bird is that I find it ultimately to be an inspiring movie 
about athlete and worker agency that is not very rosy at all along the way versus this movie kind of quizzically for me um, is constantly extolling the virtues of looking at the world as a cold emotionless math equation and yet it's a pretty sentimental movie at its core they're both sentimental movies but the but high flying bird is Literally, the the mantra of the movie is we will not compare this sport to slavery in any way. Yeah. The players have agency. They are people. They have dreams and goals and desires. And they are not just here for your amusement. Yeah. Which is a great thing to say as a mantra in a sports movie that has a predominantly black cast. And that is maybe never said in any other sports movie? And never said any other sports movie particularly in a movie like Moneyball where there are some like pretty heartbreaking scenes where Bennett Miller and the script make sure you see these guys like get cut and get traded and are treated like they are just the property of these teams. Like both baseball and the NBA have like a problem with this idea of, I mean, professional sports just has a problem with the idea of how they treat people. Mm Mm-hmm. And like their lives and their goals. And like, what if you did just buy a house? What if your kid just did get into a good school? Like it doesn't matter. Right. So I, I I agree with you. I actually, I think that it's good that those scenes are in there. I just think that the way the movie is made, the Michael Dana score, I don't love, I don't really love Bennett Miller in general. And we squabbled a little bit about Capote. Sometimes I think he really lingers in drama that is just not that dramatic. Like he'll just hang around a scene that's like pretty dark and pretty brooding and boy is there a lot of Brad Pitt brooding in this movie. But it's like there aren't a lot of like dynamics underneath this scene to justify us hanging out here, Bennett. I think Bennett maybe is like a little too hard on a lot of these characters too. Okay. Because like, I mean, but Billy Bean slash Brad Pitt is like a total scumbag and that's like probably the reason he is hard on him. And it's like, the whole idea of this guy, you know, if we really boil down the plot and sort of the, what this movie is saying, it's like, here's this like, you know, rich white guy toiling at this system that like he either gets paid like a several million or several more million than that, but he's still making like a boatload of money using mostly players of color, like in the chess match with this other white guy who's like never played yeah, who's never played a day in his... None of whom have... Played, it's all just Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah. And, like, I think where this movie sort of, like, waxes a little, like, like white sentimental in a way that High Flying Bird is like, Kyle MacLachlan's a bad dude. He's like, when he says he's a family man, he's that just means his private jet's waiting for him so he can go to New Zealand or whatever. This movie is not willing, though, when it has that guy who looks like the person who inherits InGen in the second Jurassic Park movie controlling the Boston Red Sox. Oh, yeah. Like, that's a pretty, like, he's definitely a dick. Um, But, like, the other people, like, Billy Bean is not portrayed as the kind of, like, ruthless dickhead that I think he is in real life and it's pretty well documented that he is in real life. Mm, And it also doesn't speak too much to the like, like, wow, isn't this glamorous him like working out and driving in his gas guzzling uh, SUV that he doesn't seem to put anything in the bed of ever. Uh (laughs) 
And let's see him waste gas driving 50 miles away and then driving them back just to make an emotional point. Right. Like there's something just unlikable about Billy Bean that I just don't think the movie realizes. Interesting. Well, if I can jump off that point, I was thinking about this last night and like started chuckling to myself. Um, For a movie that is all about a critique of the eye test to then put Brad Pitt in of all people in front of you, who's just like a beautiful statue of the man whose primary and I think effective acting choices in this movie are man spreading and chewing while talking. <laughs> this, there is never the throwing things. There has never been an actor or movie star who is so more indicative of the old scout talk of like, oh, he's just a classy big guy uh, than Brad Pitt. And it works so well in this movie. I'm just going to flip this desk and then tell what's his name. He's going, down to the minors that's right that's right um i think brad pitt is great in this movie i think he's perfect i think his body i'm i jest his body language for this sort of like you know thinky jock is perfect when he goes to visit his ex wife played by robin wright and her new husband spike jones who's in this movie for one scene all of their body language in that like couch standoff is perfect um, that's a pretty great scene that has some, nothing to do with baseball or like anything there's great acting in this movie um there is great acting in this movie but i think that like brad pitt is basically just doing like a jockey or rusty from motions 11 when Zalian and sorkin's team up really works on this movie i do think it really works because you know sorkin makes the scenes crackle as he does but it does feel like Zalian is there more kind of akin to bennett miller as like the guiding hand who's just like okay let's make sure we have some of these scenes that establish what well, the I characters feel do like aaron sorkin is brad pitt and steve Zalian's probably jonah hill okay where it's like i wouldn't do that if i were you and huh. brad pitt's like well you hang up the phone when you hear the thing you wanted to hear let me give you some wisdom. Let me give you some country wisdom disguised as like intellectual pandering. Yeah. Yeah. The, this time around, I have to say the, I love the, the way the scouts talk. It's so well studied. Um, And you just kind of sit there and listen to them espouse the, what Jonah Hill calls like medieval ways of baseball thinking. The thing that one guy says is like, oh, he's the kind of guy when he, when he walks into a room, his dick's already been there for two minutes. And like, that's how, that's their method of player evaluation. I love the thing where it's like his girlfriend's only a six. He doesn't have any confidence. Right, right. But, and those are like really funny, but then I do also like that the way they talk is appealing and insightful in its own ways. And they're talking about David justice and that guy's like, we'll be lucky if he hits his own weight and you have to like stop and be like, wait, Oh, okay. So they're saying that if he'll probably hit about two twenty or something like that, Sure, they have these, they have canned wisdom that is, that comes from somewhere. And if you pay any attention to sports, you know, you can't win a title with just sabermetrics. You have to like put a functional team together that like, works in a more intangible chemistry sense like the this is part of the reason probably that like billy bean hasn't been that successful nobody's put a team together on a spreadsheet this movie has a weird like view of the eye test like it's necessary in some like the human don't fail to let the human factor be a factor like i think the movie kind of posits for example that the scott hatterberg um home run at the end is because he had that extra boost of confidence for being like picked at all by any team. Yeah. He was like, he gave a little bit extra just because of how down and out he was, but there's no number to like, you know, reconcile his sadness. Yeah. (laughs) 
or his happiness at being picked. Can you defend the baseball in this movie? I'm just not sure. What it has like to the be there. like the realism of it? Not the realism, just like it, it and the way it's filmed. Like you know that that they keep coming back to sort of that like pitch black plane on which people are playing, and I I just find that to be like 20 minutes of the movie that is I don't know like a I. Maybe I side on the high flying bird. I think a braver movie is like you just don't need that. I think a braver movie just shows like the television coverage of the actual like baseball. Yeah, and then you just have Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, like because he apparently, I mean, Billy Bean allegedly doesn't really watch the games at all live anyway. Right. So there's no reason your camera needs to be there. And I almost think it's a more haunting movie if they like still have the same amount of stadium shots with him in it but like you never see it full of people mm. like that's, what's effective about high flying bird is all these like basketball courts. And even with um, great white hype, like seeing the, the boxing arena empty is mm. far more affecting than seeing it full. Sure. That's true. That's true. But yeah, this movie makes some strange, I think, I mean, in a, an attempt to be that four quadrant type movie of like, well, this is an inspiring sports story in addition to like a money crunchy Michael Lewis adaptation. Right. Yeah. You know, the market didn't know it could handle, uh, you know, the big short yet. But I guess this movie kind of proved that like you can have people were there for the intelligence of it, not for the sports of it. Yeah. I think that's a good, very good point, and I think that I I like the next evolution. I think that this movie is twenty minutes too long, um, and and some of that is the baseball sentimentality point I'm making, and some of it is just the like we don't need all that driving, we don't need all those weights, we don't need. There's just as we said, there's not enough to that man to justify that much time spent just looking at him. Other than I like to look at Brad Pitt. Um, and I have to say, I like this movie just less than I remembered this time. I think I disagree with you. I mean, I'm a big baseball guy too, and it may just come down to like you like basketball more, and I like baseball more. Yeah. So I, you know, got a little choked up when he's rounding the bases. Uh, Chris Pratt as yeah. Scott Hatterberg just great like in washed this movie. up. I thought the baseball was pretty good. The like. Aaron Sorkin walk and talk is pretty good. The like, pack your bags, Pete. I just traded you for the Indians. Is like that part of it's like pretty cool. And like the part I did like about High Flying Bird, like that, you know, braggadocious uh, sort of phone call, you know, agent getting things done, deals being made kind of hoopla. Yeah. I love that. So I think this movie, if I'm going to land, is a good, good. I don't think I have any other choice but to agree. Like, I think it's well made, and I think there are like 10 scenes in it that I really, really like, which is more, way more than you can say for <laughs> most movies. Um, right. Yeah, I just. Miss PSH. I just found, yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. That, I will stand by Bennett for lingering on just like, are we going to stand here and watch Philip Seymour Hoffman just like walk back down the hallway in frustration? Like, yeah, we are. Great. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's as you accurately said, it's the um, kind of forced four quadranting of the movie that in retrospect just like doesn't hold up that well for me. Like, I'm not sure the end, the the isn't baseball romantic sentiment. Um, I just think we have enough baseball movies that say that. And the more on theme ending of a movie like this is Peter Brandt being like, 
I just got offered a bunch of money by Theo Epstein and I'm going to go help the Red Sox win a World Series in two years. Because Peter Brand's not a real character anyway. So like, I, don't, I, I think it would be more in line if they're just like, yes, and now this innovation is parody and it was only an inefficiency because people didn't know about it and now they do. I think that makes more sense. I think that makes the movie hold up a little better. But in terms of our rating system, it's a good good. Yeah, and I agree with you too that it has that kind of, it almost has that like catch me if you can thing of like once people catch on to what they're doing, it's obviously they're going to stop doing it that way because like people can rip them off. Yep. And big money baseball figured out sabermetrics and then very quickly, you know, now it's not like Oakland still has that advantage. Like people saw what was a good system and adopted it immediately. Yep. Okay. You, you want to talk about the great white hype, the title card match of this. What is it called? Title match card. Oh, the main event. The main event. That's what we're, that's God, this is no longer a sports podcast. Um, so, uh, 1996's great white hype is definitely the least prestigious and, and no surprising, like the least good <laughs> movie of these three, I think. Um, but it is a really interesting third cousin. I was kind of like, Ooh, did I make a weird call by suggesting this one? But like, yes, it fits the- <laughs> I did make a weird call, <laughs> but it fits the theme in an interesting way. If just to, um, as like the complete antithesis to like the wokeness of something like High Flying Bird. It is like studied great white hype as a motion picture, High Flying Bird, uh, and almost parodies how intentionally satirical, satirically racist it is. Yes. Like, there are characters who are, like, intentionally, not, like, just because of the time it was made. No. People are, like, supposed to be like, oh, I'm not racist. Uh, And then they say, like, go kill that jungle animal. Right. (laughs) It's upsetting. (laughs) It is pretty upsetting. Um, There's a lot of profanity. I watched this today with my mother. Oh, no. Nancy. (laughs) Nancy thought it was funny. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Nancy, Nancy really enjoyed it. Oh God, um, family podcast. So it's directed by uh, Reginald Hudlin, who does not have like a glowing directorial resume. He's done a lot of TV in the years since this one. Um, it's co-written by Ron Shelton, though, which I think is where some of its like sports movie cred comes from. Ron Shelton, of course, uh, wrote and and I think directed White Men Can't Jump and right. Bull Durham and Tin Cup and a, and a lot of like 90s sports movies that really effectively sort of feed off the atmosphere around sports. Um, he's a, he, Should be noted though, Ron Shelton, a white guy. Yes, you are right. Um, so this, so it's, yeah, it's set in the 90s and it's set in the world of boxing, which is like very ugly anyway. I do sympathize with the movie that's like, it is hard to satirize a sports subculture as fucked up as boxing because <laughs> like things happen all the time in the sport that are like you know stranger than fiction uh right but not a lot of fiction happening here i don't think you, samuel L. jackson is basically playing don king with his hair pushed down uh reverend sultan is this boxing promoter uh he has a and he's got this weird sort of relationship with islam too but it also pitches that being sort of a a charlatan's game yes which is 
problematic in and of itself. Because the movie starts, interestingly, we start in the desert where these these two scorpions yeah. going at it. And you think this is going to be like a really interesting film if you like start <laughs> with this. And then crassly, a limousine runs over the two scorpions. And then we go into this like very showy, racially and religiously troubling <laughs> maybe exploitation picture. People are tired of paying good money to watch brothers beat up brothers. There ain't a white guy out there for you. I'm gonna create you one. White heavyweight? It's like saying black unity. I want you to return to the ring. I don't fight anymore. I guarantee you $10 million. Now, it's the fight of the century. This man knocked out James Roper. That was 17, man. I've killed Holly Duty now. And everyone's asking the same question. Is it home? Two bucks on the clean-cut white boy. Or is it mm. height? You got to stop eating this stuff to be in some kind of shape. Oh, I'm in shape. I'm round. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, I got a lot of pictures. And those Ooh. pictures will ruin you. Ruin me? My reputation? So let's just get through the setup real fast. Damon Wayans plays uh, the successful, undefeated black heavyweight champion who is beating all comers but is not successful because, uh, you know, white mainstream audiences aren't buying the pay-per-views because he keeps fighting other black fighters. And right, but that's not actually the issue. Even the movie sort of points out what's really happening is they're just having him fight inferior fighters, so he just keeps winning. And so no one really makes any money off of it because no one's interested in the fights that this guy, even though he's the champ, is fighting. He's not fighting Marvin Shabazz, who is like the number one contender, and Jamie Foxx, his promoter, who are kind of like hanging around the whole movie demanding not to be ducked. Right. It's a scummy business. So what they decide to do is uh, basically manufacture a white contender uh, in the form of Peter Berg of all actors. Director Peter Berg. (laughs) Yes. Before Patriot's Day, he did the great white hype, and he is the titular great white hype. That's right. Yeah. Um, He had beaten... The, the champ as an amateur and they go to Cleveland where he's playing in this sort of like band getting ready for Woodstock 99 <laughs> and uh, pull, don't feed my ego and they pull him off the stage and put him in the gym for four weeks and they're like great we'll turn this into a show a la um, Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney in the 80s which they cite in the movie one of the problems with this movie is and there's so many but it's just that like there is no subtext like they state every, literally everything about every dynamic in the movie is spelled out in the first 10 minutes. And so if you're not going to go like very intelligent satire, like leave it's, something. But it's not, it's slapstick satire. Right. Leave something to the imagination. And it's just like, no, they literally talk about Mike Tyson and Jerry Cooney in the movie. Right. Like it's they very don't su- let the history inform this as like sort of a based on a true story thing. It's, it is like a high flying bird, but it's separation from the like quote unquote realism of contemporary boxing is like, is so far off that it's like a weird, like alternate universe boxing. That's like funny. Yeah. But except everybody correlates like one to one with everybody else. It's just like the things that they do are, 
very like broad. Everyone's comedy. just the satire, or the everyone's just the stereotype of you know. Oh, here's like a charlatan Muslim uh, boxing promoter, and he has this stupid sort of fat off the couch uh, contender uh, champ that he's trying to set up this fight with with this you know sort of you know, what would you even call him? The warrior poet, you know, Peter Berg, (laughs) who's like, who they sort of frame as being Irish, Terry Conklin, but he's actually not Irish. And he claims he's doing what he's doing and he's going to donate the money to the homeless problem in Cleveland slash the United States slash America. Says about a hundred times. And, but there's still a scene with him wearing a Confederate flag t-shirt. Yeah. You know, and his his trainer, Jonathan Reese Davies, who's Sala from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, for God's yeah. sake, is in there being like intentionally racist to serve some sort of comedic point. Right. And I can't tell if like the movie's in on that joke or the movie's just like wildly racially insensitive. And the look of the movie, the patina of the movie is so of like a you know, of a 90s Wayans movie. Um, yes. That this is three years after Jurassic Park, and Jeff Goldblum, like, doesn't seem to understand, like, why he's there. But he's, like, going to do his Jeff Goldblum thing, too, yeah. as if it is any other 90s movie. He's playing a, a, a journalist, and the, his little Chiron at the bottom says, Freelance Crusader, which I thought was sort of a, right. a funny touch. It's sort of like the movie about what he does for a living uh, before the big chill or something. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a freelance crusader. And you know, now he's sitting here uh, talking to himself. Yeah. <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? Yeah. So Ian Malcolm and John Arnold are reunited here. Um, but this is where I think like on a script level, like maybe the two writers, there's some odd things like, cause there are some clever lines. The thing where, you know, Conklin says, I'm not Irish. And, John Rice Davies is like, it's boxing, it just means you're white, is like a funny line. So too is um, very, very late in the movie. It's like the script all of a sudden gets an idea in its head of what it should have been doing the whole time, where the ring announcers who are uh, playing it straight do twist themselves in knots to wonder what the white contender who's never even had a single professional fight like, what if he had switched places and we just gave him all the success of the black champion? We don't know. Like, maybe he would have been really good if he would have had all the same opportunities as the Damon Wayans character. And that, I was like, hold on. Stop, like, record scratch. Stop the tape. Like, this is the media satire that we've been waiting for the whole time, where the white media machine just, like, starts to give credit to white people for things they haven't done. But that's nowhere right. else in the movie, that level of insight. I, yeah, I don't think the movie like is as prescient as it easily could have been had it just made clearer choices like that one. Yeah, like it never really commits to that kind of, you know, white appropriation satire. It really is like a boxing satire, and that's more like what they're satirizing is the way that boxing commentators talk, like not the major sort of media sure. implications of of how some athletes are framed and some athletes are, you know, chided. Yeah. 
You're right. That's true. It's just making fun of the boxing carnival by doing like a sli- maybe slightly grosser ver- version of the carnival. And when you like when you shoot for a satire and miss, then you've just like heightened something very ugly. And that's kind of what this movie is. It is a really ugly movie. Like in its sort of gaze on women too, there's like a lot of shots of like breasts and butts like with no faces. Yeah. Which is like very troubling. And again, it like gets away with it, I guess, because it's satire and especially like Peter Berg. Like he has a weird moment when Peter Berg's like, they're just like offering women to him like after his punk rock show or whatever. Yeah. And then he otherwise like doesn't seem that way around women because women continue to throw themselves at him throughout the movie. But he like gets a conscience or something once he gets thrown onto this national stage. Mm hmm. Anyway, just another example of judging white people by how they behave right now and not how they behaved historically. Sure. But there is, like, what is the takeaway? Like, both Peter Berg and... That he got played to? Um, yeah, I, I guess that everybody got played. Marlon Wayans got played. Everybody got played. And the, the Don King allegory just got... Or not allegory, but the Don King uh, analogous character just got richer. And Jeff Goldblum, who was going to, like, disrupt the system, didn't do it, and then, like, kind of was like, well, you win. That was a really dumb decision that he didn't, like... Why is he even in the movie? I don't understand, like, why he's in the movie. Like, he's supposed to be this sort of, like, Michael Moore documentary filmmaker who's going to, like, ruin the life of Samuel L. Jackson's Reverend Fred Sultan. And then Sultan's just like, what if I you want to get in this jacuzzi with me and what if I offered you a job? Would you turn that quickly? And he's like, you yeah, definitely <laughs> without, without question. I think it was, and then he just, and then you never see that like woman or crew again that he was with. No, it's, it's so weird. It's a really dumb decision that he doesn't become the like media liaison for the promotional outfit and instead becomes like an almost rival promoter. Like you're completely losing the thread of, again, the almost satire. I just think this movie is such a waste because the cast is so good and it's like almost an interesting parody. It like doesn't know if it wants to be a parody or a satire, I think is the problem. Oh yeah. That's an interesting distinction. It lands somewhere in the middle and I think just becomes kind of a gross, weird, like, time capsule movie of like how ideas were processed in 1996 of like, how can we get a movie that's like a boxing movie for boxing movie people, but also like a parody for people who actually like boxing, but also a broad comedy with a variety of different angles, like Cheech Marin, Marlon Wayans, Jeff Goldblum, John Lovitz for the SNL people. This is like a 10 quadrant movie. Can we have, and it just doesn't make any sense. I like the distinction you made with parody. It feels a little bit like, um, you know, the recent wave of like SNL cold opens where it's just like the thing that you are making fun of is already so bad, so heightened, so ridiculous that you like putting someone with like bad makeup in there, like literally just saying what they said in real life, but like in a, with a more garish vocal intonation is, is not revealing anything. It's almost as if like the that movie Concussion was a comedy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like let's make a comedy about CTE. Yeah. 
and never commit to either the comedy of it or like the allegory about like how black men are systematically killed by this modern day gladiator system we have. That's a good point. And I think a point that probably gestures us both toward bad, bad. Tell the truth. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> I was going to, how are we going to get that joke in here after you just said that? But like in a funny way. Yeah, I just made it what, however you describe the SNL cold opens. Yeah, sure. Tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> bad, bad for great white hype. I think bad. Uh, yeah, I was hoping it would be bad good but i think it might just be bad bad yeah this one i think has been forgotten for a reason it was a great white hype of you telling me to watch this movie <laughs> and me like getting mildly excited about it because of the cast i never seen it and then it. being like this is bad i will say though that you know in the slices of the pie graph that are baseball basketball and boxing in this category that instead of like social justice or math like the boxing uh you know innovation is just like what if we uh exploited everybody's biases and one person walked away with 20 million dollars it's, it's pretty on brand okay folks we love you for listening uh watch high flying bird let us know what you think you can on instagram or on twitter you can find be real podcast there or you can in the comments of our playlist post of this episode please do give a nice rating to the playlist podcast network feed that you're you might be getting this on right now or if you're a be real listener head on over there they have some other great shows the guys that adjust your tracking uh just dissected velvet buzzsaw in a way that i think we both very much approved of so that's going on as well um yeah berealpodcast.com for any uh old episodes we've talked about baseball before if that's more your thing uh you can hear us talk about million dollar arm and league of their own and i think i talk about drunk watching angels in the outfield this is like three years ago now oh i thought we watched the natural didn't we, watch and we did the watch the natural we had a big <laughs> fight about it um yeah i thought it was like great and like a just like an american fairy tale and chance was like i don't love this country <laughs> yeah i was like uh give me give me some steven soderberg in this give me cold unfeeling process I would have preferred if it were silent and shot on an iPhone. That's right. Uh, well, anyway, Noah, pleasure, Sir. pleasure trying not to do a sports podcast with you today, but still having some fun doing one. Hey, I mean, this really tested my knowledge of both 90s boxing, yeah. um, the NBA period. That's right. And early 2000s AL baseball, which is, I mean, that's... It's my bread and butter right there. All right. Cut to other podcasters talking about the medium, and I'll see you next time. See you later, bud. Hey, look yonder, tell me what's that you see. Marching to the fields of Concord. Looks like handsome Johnny with a musket in his hand. Marching to the Concord War.